The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Expect at least two things from every person who calls themselves a member of Steadfast Church. Um, one is proper doctrine, right? The, way, the things that we believe. And the other is proper culture, the, the way that we live out the things that we believe. Uh, and, and, and I said this a couple weeks ago, but I, I think it still it bears repeating. All of us lean by our preferences one way or the other. Some of us lean towards doctrine and truth because we like clarity and we like precision. That's good. Others of us lean more towards culture because we like feel and vibe and relationship. And that's good. But we have to have both. Any one of those, doctrine or culture, by itself, alone, can be destructive. Okay? For example, some of you uh, have been part of churches that have all their P's and Q's sort of in order, all their T's crossed and I's dotted theologically, but those people treat you like garbage. Others of you have been part of communities that say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what we believe, we just love each other. I'm sorry, that is a belief. <laughs> And that belief cannot sustain the kind of love you want it to. So we must hold both in tension. But that's very, very difficult. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Galatians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. uh, Excuse me, not the first 11. Verses 11 through 21. Uh, I'm going to read them. And uh, I hope, I believe that the Lord has something really uh, interesting for us in this passage. uh, But it's going to take me a minute to set it up. So join me in uh, Galatians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live in the flesh. Excuse me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we give you great thanks for the gathering of the saints this morning. Thank you for all of our family members. Thank you for all of our new friends, those who are sort of just kicking the tires on this community and maybe even on Christianity. And I pray that today you would help us as we look to your word uh, to see the reality and the beauty of of what Jesus has done for us, to see the reality and the beauty of, of the kind of people you are calling us to be, the kind of community that we are trying to build here, and that you would, by your spirit, make us that kind of people, by your grace and for your glory. Holy Spirit, I need you, and so I plead with you to fill me and empower me that I might rightly divide this passage, that it blesses the people in this room, and that you, by your spirit, might transform hearts on the spot, moving people from death into life, from unrepentance to repentance, from um, hypocrisy to genuineness, from unbelief to belief. Help us, help us, we pray, in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. All right, so um, very simple. I have three very simple points. Uh, I'll give them to you now, and then we'll kind of look at them together. The first one is the doctrine we confess, okay? The second one is the culture we create, and then the third one is the tension that we hold. So all that was explained in my uh, introduction, but let's get after it here. I want to start actually in verse 15, so jump ahead with me to verse 15, and let's look at the doctrine that we confess, okay? Once again, I'll read it, uh, verse 15 of chapter 2, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, for we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now let me give you a little background if you don't know um, some context on what's going on in this region of Galatia. There's a controversy that has arisen over precisely how people are justified, that is declared right with God. Paul had come into this region of mostly non-Jewish, Gentile, pagan uh, people, and he had proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. He had proclaimed justification by faith alone. In other words, them trusting with their whole hearts in the life death and resurrection of Jesus on their behalf. And their simple trust in that was enough for them to be forgiven of sin and declared right in the eyes of God. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm so, I missed you, Brent. Uh, (laughs) After Paul came through the region of Galatia preaching this gospel, another group of people called the Judaizers came through Galatia. And they were Jewish people who had also believed in Jesus, but their message was, yes, believe in Jesus and add to yourself the Jewish traditions and rules and laws and customs. Specifically, they were um, encouraging people to bear the mark, uh, men, of uh, Jewish circumcision, that ritual. So they would say, okay, well, not all Jews are Christians, but in order for you to be a Christian, you also have to be Jewish. So we got a special going on. There's a little tent out here. We'll give you the snip, and then you can go about your merry way. And that's kind of how they were operating. But Paul's argument was Jesus plus anything else 
as a requirement for God's full and final justification or acceptance of us is a totally different gospel. And so he fought hard to maintain that the gospel is complete without need of additions, without need of revisions, without need of improvements. Now, honestly, if anybody had a leg up morally, it would have been the Jews. Okay? They had grown up with a sense of God. They had grown up with the traditions. They had grown up with the law, these commands from God. The Gentiles, on the other hand, the scriptures say were strangers to the covenant, alienated from Israel, without hope and without God in the world. And yet Paul's argument here in the book of Galatians is that the Jews are no more justified with the law than the Gentiles are without it. And you say, why why is that? How can the Jews who have the law of God be no more justified with it than the Gentiles are without it? Because the law shows us our need, but it has no power to actually affect change in our hearts. And I gave this example a few weeks ago, but I'll give it again. Um, The easiest way for you to understand this is those little white rectangles with a number on them on on the road that say speed limit. The law reveals to you your need to obey it, but the law has no power to make you obey it. That sign cannot make you slow down, can it? It's powerless. Furthermore, the Jewish law demands perfect obedience. I believe it's in the book of James where he says, if you keep the whole law but you fail at one point, you have failed the entire thing. And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments, by the way. Okay? The Jewish law... uh, contained 613 commands. And on top of that, the Jews decided, you know what? What if there's some gray area around one of these 613? Let's create some additional laws and rules of our own to make sure that we don't accidentally break one of these 613. So they had an entire other book of laws on top of the law law. The law demands perfect obedience. And even if it was possible, which it isn't, even if it was possible to obey the law outwardly, right, to check off all 613 of those, what about inwardly? What about the thoughts and the motivations and the intentions of our hearts that betray the very law that we say we uphold? Okay, so that's why Paul says here, we know We Jews know that no one is justified by works of the law, ever. Which is why we also have believed in Jesus. He says, the Gentiles got it right. The Gentiles understood they have nothing to bring. They have no merit to bring before God. So they are simply clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, we do that too. Us with the law, us with tradition, us with with this sense of who God is, we come with nothing either. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. We are declared right with God, not on the basis of our works, but by faith in the finished works of Jesus. Which is why he says here in Galatians 2, 20, um, the life I live I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is faith. It is faith alone in the finished work of Jesus. Now, what is faith? Is it not just belief, simple trust? 
Nothing more, nothing less. Um, there, there's a body of teaching called the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you might have grown up in other traditions with catechisms or bodies of teaching. Uh, a catechism was simply oftentimes question and answer form, and it's written to, uh, to help children understand doctrine from an early age. And the Heidelberg uh, Catechism comes from uh, the Lutheran tradition, but their, their question and answer on how we are righteous before God is amazing. I want to read it for you really quickly. The question is, this is from 1563, by the way. How are you righteous before God? Here's the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined towards all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor had been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Isn't that good news? <laughs> so here at Steadfast Church, we have accepted that our only justification is in Jesus Christ, received with the empty hands of faith. It's like a debit card. I wish I had one to show you. You know what a debit card is, okay? Kids, ask your parents what a debit card is and ask them if you can spend on it. Uh, here's the reality, okay? You got this debit card, and it is connected in some way to uh, the heart and mind of God, okay? And you are a credit risk. And so am I. But it's only the discredited who get this credit from Jesus. And all the debts that we rack up due to our sin and our folly and our disobedience and our rebellion and our stupidity and our ignorance, past, present, and future, are charged to that account. So those debts get paid in full. And then here's the best part, okay? Your, your debts are wiped out. They're completely cleaned. But then every time, going forward, every time you feel the sting of conviction from the Holy Spirit that you have failed him, in word, in deed, in action, in intention or thought, every time you feel conviction, you don't have to hide. You don't have to stuff it down and pretend it doesn't exist. You can simply confess it and say, Lord, I'm sorry but this is why you died. And you take that card and you swipe it. And it's paid for. And you go on rejoicing. Because Christ paid for all of your sin. Even the stuff you haven't thought of doing yet. So listen, if, if you're here today, if you're within the sound of my voice, and you know you are a mess. You, you can't get out of your own way. But you are clinging to Jesus Christ and him alone. You are justified. You are declared righteous in the sight of God. You are free. You are forgiven. You belong to him.
This is the doctrine we confess, and this doctrine ought to create in this place an atmosphere, a culture, okay, in which all kinds of people who also are trusting in Jesus alone are accepted and approved of, that they belong here because they're clinging to the same thing we're clinging to, which is Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, but sadly, it is incredibly easy to betray the doctrine that we proclaim by the culture that we create without even noticing it. We see that here with Peter. Here in this text, we see the opposite of the kind of culture that we want to create here. Paul having to correct even a leader in the church for going sideways because what he saw was so insidious that if he did not talk about it, if he did not bring it uh, to bear, if it was not dealt with, he knew it would eat the church alive. What was it? Let's look at it. Verse 11. You guys with me? Verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted, what's the word? What's the word there? Hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here I want you to see, we looked at the doctrine that we confess, I want you to see now the culture we create. What Paul saw from Peter was hypocrisy. Peter's conduct was not in step with, he says, in step with or aligned with the truth of the gospel. In other words, his behaviors betrayed his beliefs. And that was not only undermining the convictions that he proclaimed, but because he was a leader, he was putting pressure unnecessarily on other believers to conform to the way that he was living, which was hypocritically. And so Barnabas follows the lead of Peter. Other Jews follow the lead of Peter. And all of these brothers are in hypocrisy because Peter was. Does that make sense? Now, it wasn't that Peter had read a bad theology book and all of a sudden started believing wrong things. That's not what happened. In fact, in verse 16, again, Paul says, Yet we know. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He most certainly had to include Peter in his we there. Peter, you know, we know that we are not justified by works, but by faith. How would Peter have known that? Okay, if you're part of Missio Dei and you remember our study of the book of Acts, do you remember Acts chapter 10? We looked at uh, Peter's, what I call pig in a blanket dream, right? It's not original to me, but I like it. So Peter has this vision, this dream of a blanket being lowered down and all these uh, unclean animals are there and the Lord says to him, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, no, 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 Lord, I can't do that. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And what Peter started to understand was that actually had to do not with animals and what you can eat, but with nations and people groups and ethnicities. That all people who would hear the gospel are welcomed into this family, not just Jews alone. And so Peter goes to um, Cornelius, 
and he proclaims the gospel to him, and Cornelius becomes, we think, the first Gentile or non-Jewish believer in Jesus Christ in the scriptures, okay? This gospel is going worldwide now to all tribes, tongues, and nations, to everyone. And so Peter understood in Acts chapter 10 that God shows no partiality, that the gospel is on offer to everyone who would receive that finished work with empty hands. Peter knew that the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles had been torn down by Jesus Christ. And Peter even defended that doctrine in, uh, in Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem council. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15, he's defending what happens. But now we see Peter, a little while later, rebuilding the wall that Christ died to tear down. Not because his convictions had changed, but because he stopped living by them. Uh-oh, was right. <laughs> he ate with the Gentiles. Before those men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He saw them as his equals. He had, he had, he'd loved them. He, he fellowshiped with them. But as soon as these other Judaizers came down, he started to slowly, subtly, diplomatically remove himself, separate himself, and go sit at a different table. See, Peter was afraid. He feared the circumcision party. And hypocrisy is largely driven by our fear, our fear of acceptance or our fear of disapproval. And, and when we feel social pressure to conform, that leads to political posturing, right? And we're all kind of comparing ourselves and trying to measure up against one another when in reality, we should know that our acceptance is in Christ and Christ alone. And because Peter was a leader in the church, others followed his lead into this very same hypocrisy. And so Paul says to him, listen, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel, meaning the outflow, um, the, the, how the gospel flows into our relationships and our tone and our expectations and all the sort of um, under-the-surface unspoken rules of engagement that we have for one another. See, it's how the gospel plays itself out in those relational connections. That's what he's saying. You're, and, and listen, what I, here's what I love. Um, Paul does not say to him, Peter, you're breaking the rule where we include everybody. He doesn't even say to Peter, Peter, you're sinning. What does he say? You're out of alignment. You're out of alignment. You've drifted from the truth of the gospel. And that gives me a lot of encouragement. You know why? Because if the pillars, Peter is considered one of the pillars of the church according to uh, the scripture. If Peter can drift from the truth of the gospel, I, I know we can too. Now, there is some discrepancy in every single one of us, even right now, between the, 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 the things we say we believe and the way we behave. There's some measure of whether it's ignorance or outright hypocrisy, that's for the Lord to determine. But there is some discrepancy in all of us between the things we say we believe and the, and the way that we behave. And sometimes we don't even see it. 
which is why we need one another. We need community. We need the family of God to see what we don't see. What would have happened if Peter had not been confronted by Paul? What would have happened if Paul had not been there to say, Peter, I love you, but I got to rebuke you here. It would have destroyed the church. At the very minimum, it would have split the church between two different gospels. One that says Jesus and Jesus alone, and one that says Jesus plus, which is no gospel at all. So you see the need here. We, We need one another. We need relationship. We need to be able to speak into each other's lives. And there are, by the way, all kinds of ways that we as individuals and as churches subtly rebuild walls that Jesus died to tear down. There are all kinds of things that we do to add to the gospel. And so we've got to be very careful. We've got to be on guard, brothers and sisters. That we do not fall prey to moralizing our traditions or our preferences. That we don't that we don't, under the surface of our conversations, say to people, you don't belong here unless you conform to, to me. Unless you conform to our standards or our philosophies or our politics or our social norms, you don't really belong. So the really righteous people in this church, they believe this. They they. You know, they do this with their, uh, as regards their, their school. They vote this way. They listen to this kind of stuff. And, and you, you could still be part of this church, but you're not really going to be one of the cool kids unless you conform. It happens so subtly. We look at other people who do not look like us, and we judge them. And we think, well, they must be less righteous, less holy. They don't really trust God. They don't really believe like I believe. They don't really take God seriously. And you don't even know their name, much less their heart. How dare you? We must be a people who extend grace, who take the time to build that relationship, who say, hey, tell me more about this. Tell me more about that. And listen, we, it could be a million different things. You, we've all seen churches where, um, I don't know, I'll make it up. You got, we have a certain philosophy around schooling our kids. And if you don't school your kids the way we school our kids, then you don't really belong here. As if that has anything to do with the gospel. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying it's not essential as it regards the gospel. You see what I'm saying? We do this so subtly and in so many different ways. So let us be careful not to unsay by our culture what we say with our doctrine. If we say that it's the empty hands of faith in Christ alone that makes you belong, that's it. We don't add anything to it. Is this making sense? I got one more point. Can we hang in for one more point? All right, so we confess we are justified by faith in Christ alone and we want to create a culture which reflects the doctrine that we believe, that anyone who trusts in Jesus like we have trusted in Jesus, they belong. An atmosphere of warmth and joy and acceptance and belonging and relief from the constant scrutiny of this world. Listen, most of us all day, every day, are swimming in a sea of proving ourselves, of justifying ourselves, of constant judgment and measuring up. 
And church ought to be the last place on the planet that we are conforming to the earthly standards of a touchy world. And yet, we also know that holding the tension between our doctrine and this culture is really, really hard. I am not the Christian that I ought to be. And neither are you. So how do we stay aligned? How do we stay in step with the truth of the gospel? Paul's going to explain it to us here in this last couple of verses. Look at verse 20 again. I want you to see the tension we hold. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, that's in this mortal body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The tension that we hold. How do we stay aligned? Paul says it's death and it's life. It's death and it's life. In other words, in verse 20 here, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, you might be thinking, uh, as far as I remember reading the Gospels, Jesus, there were two criminals, but Paul wasn't one of them. <laughs> what does he mean I've been crucified with Christ? Well, theologians have this, um, this concept called union with Christ, okay? Paul loves union. He, Paul never uses the phrase union with Christ, but he uses these words like we are in Christ and Christ is in us and we are with him and he's with us, right? He uses this language 163 times in the New Testament. This idea that we are so united by faith with Jesus Christ that his death is our death. That his life is our life. And that God, in his kindness, has removed every obstacle to us belonging to God. That he has drawn us in and that he has, um, he has welded us. You know what happens when you weld something? You take two metals, let's say, and you heat them up really hot, and then they melt together, and then they're permanently joined. That, that God has so, he has welded us to Jesus to the degree that his death is our death, that his life is, is our life, and that we are in him and with him and belong to him forever. So that Christ is in us, and Christ is with us, and Christ is for us, and Christ supplies everything that we need, and Christ restores us when we fail. And so therefore, our frail human lives are lived by faith, which means moment by moment dependence. We talked last week about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit has been entrusted to us. We are empowered by the Spirit that we live in moment by moment dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the real gospel is so counterintuitive, it doesn't really make sense to our hearts. Here's what I mean by that. How many of you, just by show of hands, are right-handed in the room? Right-handers? Okay, so there's a few lefties. How many of you know that doing, if you're right-handed, doing right-handed things, using scissors or, you know, whatever, is pretty easy? Comes naturally, straightforward, you don't have to think about it, you just do it, it's instinctual, yeah? Okay, how many of you have ever hurt your hand? And you gotta use, you gotta use your left, okay? 
I know Micah knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, it's not natural. You have to learn. You have to adjust. You have to slow down. You have to be intentional. You have to be purposeful, right? You're readjusting your whole way of doing things to operating a different kind of way. The gospel is a left-handed message for right-handed people. Because here's why. Um, get your act together, measure up, prove yourself. That comes naturally to us. We understand that. That's the, that's the water we swim in. That's the air we breathe. That's the world that we live in. Get your act together, prove yourself, measure up, all that. But to hear from God, Christ has measured up for you. It's done, it's finished, it's accomplished. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress because you belong to God because of what Christ has done. That takes a long time to make sense to our hearts and, and minds, doesn't it? And so the gospel is in a way a left-handed message, which means, listen, I'm never gonna become left-handed. It's just not gonna happen. So it'll never feel completely natural to us to operate from the gospel or in this sort of gospel way. It takes constant getting used to and constant course correction and constant dependence upon the spirit of God. And so we see that the, the gospel is not just the, the doorway into our salvation, but it's the whole pathway of our life in Christ. A constant walking with independence on Jesus. And so we, we think to ourselves, okay, if I have been justified in Christ by faith alone, and you have been justified by faith in Christ alone, but you don't look like me, and you don't vote like me, and you don't think like me, it's going to take me a minute to figure out how I accept you. But I can, because you've also been accepted by Christ like I have, right? It, it allows us to, to give each other grace. Now, I'm not saying... Please don't hear me saying that we're just giving carte blanche and we don't call each other out on our foolishness. We absolutely do that, as Paul did to Peter. But it doesn't mean you're lesser of a Christian than I am. It takes constant getting used to, constant course correction, constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Um, we have a privilege here, church. We have a privilege to to persevere in our doctrine by faith and to preserve a culture by faith for those who aren't even here yet. Not just for ourselves, but for those who aren't even here yet. For everyone who is going to meet Jesus through simple faith without an ounce of conformity to our preferences or our philosophies or our styles. Beloved, there are people waking up this morning all over our city who are hungover, who are addicted, who are estranged from friends and family, who are suffering from verbal or even physical abuse, who are lost and lonely and sad there are people waking up this morning all over our city who are just indifferent to who God even is. And one day they'll come, either by your invitation or by the initiative of God's Spirit in them. 
But one way or the other, one day they're going to show up here. And here's the question we need to ask. What message are they going to hear? Are they going to hear about justification by faith alone? Or are they going to hear about Jesus plus? What culture are they going to experience? Are they going to experience warmth and joy and acceptance? Or are they going to experience suspicious looks and a cold shoulder? That's up to us. That's up to us. I can't make us behave a certain way. I'm simply trying to plead with you from the basis of Scripture so that we will become the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be so that anyone who walks through those doors will understand, in Christ, I can belong. Amen? Now, three questions I want to put up on the screen for you. Uh, I believe they'll be up there. You can write these down as they come. You can take a picture of the screen, whatever you need to do. Um, But I hope that you'll take these with you to community, to Sunday school, to brunch, wherever you're going after this. First question is this. What do I really believe about how people are made right with God? See, that my whole first point about justification by faith alone, you might be going, yeah, but what about, and, and, and your heart wants to add to the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never understood that the gospel is not about what Jesus demands from you, it's about what Jesus did for you. And that today, with empty hands, you can simply receive the finished work of Jesus in his perfect life, sacrificial death for you, and his glorious resurrection from the dead so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be freed from your bondage, so that you could be welcomed into a family and actually belong. What do I really believe about how people are made right with God? That's a question every single one of us has to answer in our own heart. Secondly, Where might my conduct be out of step or misaligned with the truth of the gospel? Some of us might lean more towards license. And so, yeah, we say we believe certain things about God, but then we sort of don't pursue holiness. We don't pursue the things we know we ought to pursue because we think, ah, God's gracious, He'll, he'll be fine. And then others of us will lean towards legalism. To the point where it's like, well, you know, it's Jesus, but don't step on a crack or you'll break your mother's back, right? And we're so like just tense and anxious about whether we're going to obey all the rules correctly. Where might my conduct, either way, be out of step with the truth of the gospel? And what effect might that have on our faith family? If we together are, if individuals within our community are out of step, it's going to affect the way we do relationships with each other. And then third, how can deeper dependence on the Holy Spirit strengthen my grip on both doctrine and culture? Holding fast to the truths of the scriptures, the plain teaching of the Bible, being unapologetic about the things we believe, and yet a culture that is gracious and kind and gentle and forgiving, just like Jesus. How can a deeper dependence on the Spirit of God help me to hold together those two things? Because it's only, guys, listen, it's only when a church will by faith hold in tension our doctrine and our culture that we ever stand a chance of people coming through these doors and saying to themselves, I think God might be here. 